Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Welcome back, everybody, to our next episode of Insight into Teaching Introductory Psychology. My name, again, is A.J. LaFerrera. I'm on the psychology team at McGraw-Hill. And today we are going to be covering the developmental psychology chapter. And I am joined by three excellent instructors. You guys want to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Janelle, do you want to kick us off? Sure. My name is Janelle Cavazos, and I'm the introductory psychology coordinator at the University of Oklahoma. Hi, I'm Sherry Cachell. I'm professor of psychology and IRB chair at State College of Florida, Manatee, Sarasota. I'm Catherine Mastron, and I currently teach at seven different colleges and universities around the Chicagoland area. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, Why don't we go ahead and get started? So if you've listened to some of our previous podcasts, you know that we like to break this up into two parts. The first part, we tackle some of the philosophical approaches to teaching the content, and then in the second part, we get into practical applications. So why don't we get started talking about your goals from this for, for this chapter. What do you want students to take away after you've gone through this content? I'll start. Since this is an introductory class, I'm looking for them to be introduced to the field of lifespan development. Um, I'd also like them to start to understand the major domains of development, like physical, social, cognitive, emotional, um, and how they work together. And I'd like them to see that lifespan runs from conception to death and is broken up into periods of development. Um, and that each of those periods have their own developmental tasks. And if students pick up a few theories and are theorists along the way, like understanding who Piaget was and why he was important to the field or what attachment is, then I feel like we've achieved a lot during this short section in the book. I like for them to uh, get a little bit of background information on things that may not know or experience on a, a regular basis, uh, one of the things that I tell them that is so unique about development is that, you know, we all live it. We were all children at one point, and we will all hopefully become elderly at one point. And so it, 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 there's a lot of obvious, I guess, to the developmental chapter, but then there's a lot of research behind the scenes that, that the students aren't aware of. And so I like to present things that are less obvious, less, less aware um, from their everyday lives, but then also things that they can use. Um, I also like to always keep in mind the theme of um, growth and decline, that throughout the lifespan there are things that are getting stronger and more sophisticated and other things that are declining, not just a typical model of, you know, we, we get better at everything while we're young and then everything goes downhill when we get old. You know, I definitely want to dispel that myth and make sure that they understand that throughout the entire lifespan, there are things that are growing and things that are declining. I like them to walk away with a better sense of the overall lifespan. But more than that, I like them to be able to apply the information to themselves in their own lives. Uh, You know, if they can relate to some of the work that, like John Boldy or Mary Ainsworth did, um, if they can put themselves in Erickson's stages uh, up to the age that they are at that time, I really like them to be able to relate to as much of the material as they possibly can, I feel that they have a better understanding if they're able to put it in some type of real-life context for themselves. Great. So before we get into more specifics down the road, I think it makes sense to 
take a moment and kind of look at who your students are. So you all briefly talked about the schools that you teach from. Can you kind of walk us through what your typical student or classroom looks like, both in what are your students like, how big is your classroom, things like that? My classroom um, is usually uh, freshmen. Um, the majority are 18 years old coming right out of high school. Occasionally I have some, some upper-level students, but that tends to be pretty rare because University of Oklahoma is a very traditional university. And my classes are uh, capped at 475 students each, and usually enrollment is pretty full. So in any given class, yeah, I'm usually staring at, at about 475 to 500 freshmen, 18-year-olds. At State College of Florida, we cap our face-to-face -face classes at 55 and our online classes at 25. Most of our students are first time in college. They can be anywhere from a traditional 18-year-old coming in to an older student returning back. We are a community college that has become a two-year, four-year institution. So we have students who are there for AA degrees or perhaps a bachelor's degree. So we have a wide variety of students that are attending classes. Some are getting ready to go on to the university. Some are, are just trying to finish off a, an associate's degree and go into a, a career-based program. So it, it could be you could have majors in your classroom. You could have students who are just there to get something for a, a certificate-type degree. Um, one of the schools I teach at is Purdue University Northwest in Hammond, Indiana, and their uh, intro to psych is about 75 students per class, so it's a little bit bigger uh, than your traditional classroom size. I tend to get a lot of young students out there, 18, 19, 20 years old, but then I go to Wilbur Wright, which is one of city colleges in Chicago, and there they cap at 40, uh, and I tend to get more adults in there. Um, I tend to get more students that are 30s, 40s, even 50 years old that have a lot of real-life experience to bring to the classroom. And apart from their age, I also tend to get quite a diverse group out there at Wilbur Wright. Um, I might have, you know, in one semester, I might have 12 or 15 students from 12 or 15 different countries. And that brings a unique perspective uh, into teaching the psychology as a whole, but the lifespan class as well. Great. So let's jump right into this. One of the things that I tend to see a lot of is people teaching the development chapter in IntroPsych in many different places in the semester. So where do you guys teach this and why do you teach it in that specific spot? My class is organized into units uh, and each unit has sort of a, of a loose theme uh, to it. And I put the developmental chapter in the, in the third unit in the class and it goes along with the chapter on sex and gender and also the chapter on personality. Um, and so the theme is really kind of a, of a who are we uh, sort of conceptualization of psychology. I teach general psych by chapters, and I always move the lifespan chapter early in the semester right after the biology chapter, so right after the brain and behavior. I do this because my setup is early on I want the students to have the language that they need to be able to discuss later chapters. So I start off with the um, intro chapter that gives them the language about the theories, and then I do a research chapter, and then biology, and then lifespan development to get those some of the domains that they need to talk about biology, uh, biological, psychological, social, emotional, those sorts of things. And by then, we're ready to start getting into some content areas. So that's why I always move it up front. Um, and I teach it in uh, Module 2, so like the second unit of the 
of the semester, uh, and I pair it with the state's accountants chapter, which follows also the, the brain, the biology of the brain. So we just kind of continue moving along with the discussion of the brain. And we talk about it in the biology of the brain, we talk about it in the state's consciousness, and then we talk about it in development. And since the lifespan chapter and uh, the state's consciousness chapter are both rather long, I pair those two together and I only teach those two um, instead of adding a third section to it or a third chapter to it. So obviously developmental psych, the course is, I think, the second largest one in the psychology curriculum, which means that a lot of students will take both intro psych and lifespan development. And it also means that you guys either teach lifespan as well or you have a colleague that does. So what's the expectation of what students will know coming out of the development chapter in intro psych and into a lifespan development course? And if you teach both courses, feel free to talk about it from both sides. Um, I don't teach both classes anymore uh, since I moved to OU. Uh, my job now is, is all intro all the time, but I used to teach lifespan as well. And I think that, um, you know, we, we all know that uh, in intro it's a very broad survey level course, so we don't expect them to really retain a whole lot of uh, fine detail information. But I kind of would want them to get out of it, you know, going into a lifespan course is you know, the psychology is a science, basic research methods, basic ideas, also the some basic ideas of the theorists. I don't necessarily expect for them to remember who each theorist is or what stages happen when, but when, when the lifespan instructor is going over that, I expect there to be kind of a, oh, yeah, I, I vaguely remember hearing about that. Um, and, and maybe it won't be quite so difficult the second time around. And, you know, hopefully also to be able to make some finer level connections between information now that they've had the entire intro course, maybe they can start to pull in lifespan as they, as they work in more detail on theories and theorists. Maybe they can start to pull in some of the information they got from other chapters in intro, like memory and brain development and things like that. Make some of those connections a little a little clearer as they advance throughout their curriculum. I have the unique perspective of being the psychology department coordinator at SCF, so I do a lot of work with our faculty and also faculty at partner universities. So I know that the faculty at our institution have acknowledged that they're less concerned about students having any particular knowledge about lifespan development when they move on to the actual lifespan development course than they are interested in sort of basic general psychological knowledge. They want students to come to um, lifespan development knowing basic research, some, something about the brain, the knowledge of um, what psychoanalysis is versus behaviorism, uh, who Freud is, some of the major theorists. They just want some basic psychological knowledge. They would also appreciate some more fundamental assistance with critical thinking and writing skills. Our university partners, on the other hand, have said that they would like at least the basic learning objectives for the lifespan development chapter covered. And I will acknowledge that we don't always have the time to cover the whole chapter, that we struggle with covering the adult objectives um, in a way that students are successful with the content in the small amount of time that we have. So we're still working on that at our university. College Lake County is one of the schools that I teach at, and they're real big on the students knowing the different perspectives in psychology. So when I open up teaching intro, I go through each perspective, and I kind of introduce them to different names that are associated with each perspective. So that way when we go through the chapters and they hear those names again, they have a foundation of who they are and what perspective they teach. 
um, and out at College Lake County, I teach both intro and I teach lifespan. So I generally have a lot of students that follow me from intro to psych into lifespan. So I can kind of set the foundation for, you know, what I'm looking for and getting them to familiarize themselves with some of the basic theorists and ideas that match each, each perspective so that they're prepared when they come into lifespan. Sherry, you mentioned that there's a lot to cover. And both in the development chapter and in the lifespan development, your task is to cover the entire lifespan pretty much, either in a couple of classes or a whole semester. So how do you address that challenge? Are there things that you leave out or are there other ways that you address that? So as a department, we view general psychology as an overview course. It's to introduce the areas of psychology to the student. Just like we introduce clinical psychology and cognitive psychology and biopsychology, this is just an introduction to lifespan development. So I only cover from conception through adolescence. We leave out the adult portions. Um, actually, that's not totally true. We do have a few questions on some homework assignments that try to get at some of that so that students don't make it to like a nursing program. We've specifically partnered with programs on the content they need, and we make sure we address those learning objectives so they don't miss anything. But as far as lectures and things go, we don't hit everything. But, yes, I, we, we do leave out things. I only have one lecture in the semester that's going to get to that content, and I can only get through conception through adolescence. So I, I leave out a lot of the stuff that I think is kind of obvious. I mean, if it's stuff that I think that they can get um, by sitting down and having a good conversation with their, you know, parent or their grandparent or even their younger siblings, I tend to not go over it a whole lot. You know, so I, I don't mention the fact that skin gets wrinkly and the hair gets gray, um, stuff that, that, that doesn't need to be really covered, I think. In the class, I don't talk about. So I, I, I leave time for things that are less obvious, less well-known, and maybe, you know, more of interest to them as they as they go through their everyday life. And I tend to cover through, I cover more in detail through adolescence, and then I kind of skip uh, young adult and middle adulthood, and then I talk a little bit about older age as well as death and dying. I cover about 80%, you know, childhood through adolescence, and then, you know, about 20% of adulthood. And in adulthood, I, um, I focus more on dispelling myths like the midlife crisis and, like, being miserable once you get older, um, everything declines. Uh, I want to I leave them with a, with a little bit more of a positive outlook of aging. But, yeah, I still focus mostly on, on younger childhood and adolescence. So Sherry said that she devotes one class period to this. Janelle and Catherine, how much time do you guys spend on the development chapter in Intro Psych? I spend probably five or six lectures. I, I try really hard to pare it down to two weeks, and I never get there. But this is, again, this is one of the classes, one of the chapters that I think brings in so many aspects of all of the other chapters we talk about. So I emphasize it a great deal, and it's, it's probably the chapter I spend the most time on as far as in-class lectures. I tend to teach more black classes, so like the three-hour courses that meet once a week, um, and I spend probably about a week and a half on it, so maybe four, four and a half hours just on this chapter. So a pretty wide variation in terms of how much time you guys get to spend on this lecture. Okay, so let's move into the second part of today's podcast and address some of the more practical applications in the classroom. So let's start with how you guys start. Sherry, is there a way that you open your class or, or try to get started when you open up the developmental psych chapter? Well, so it depends. In my face-to-face -face classes, 
I have a time before the class even starts. And usually I do something different for each and every class period. Sometimes I might have picture up on the board, and I ask students to take pictures with their camera and use their best Instagram filter on it and come up with a title for it, a you know, the title for the image that's relevant to our class, and then post up on our Twitter account. Sometimes we have a trivia game going, or I play music, and then I put a journal topic up for them, um, and then we talk about that topic later in class. But this particular lifespan development unit, I normally put up the dancing baby from the TV show Ally McBeal, and I have a dance-off to see who can best imitate the baby, and the classmates get to vote, and the winner gets a prize. And the point of all of this silliness that I do is that they're sort of stress reducers, because the topics that we talk about in general psychology can sometimes be unnerving to new students. We talk a lot about, uh, here this section is on, I start with the female sexual anatomy, and that can be concerning for some new students. Um, we're starting from conception, and so I, it, it sort of gives them a chance to blow off some stress. And it also guarantees, the silliness guarantees that students arrive early. So that's sort of how I start my lectures. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm not nearly that creative. I, um, I tend to start with an overview of, you know, what is developmental, you know, psych. Um, why do we care? But then I, I start with the prenatal development, so I don't go into female anatomy or anything like that. Um, and I just kind of make a joke about, you know, when two people love each other very, very much, and now we have a baby, and let's talk about prenatal development with a an emphasis on teratogens, things that can go wrong, um, critical periods, again, things that they may not know just by looking at your traditional trimester development that they've seen, you know, maybe when their parents had babies and things like that. And I've opened it up a couple different ways. If I have moms and dads in there that have children, then I've asked them if they wanted to share something memorable about their birthing experience um, or just being, you know, going through labor. Um, or I've also opened it up with talking about twins uh, and the different variations that can happen. I've, ta um, I've talked about conjoined twins, and most of the students know Abby and Brittany Hensel. You know, if I pull up a picture of them, can we spend a little bit of time talking about some of the possible problems that can go along with pregnancy and delivery. I should right. also say that a lot of what I just listed was from my face-to-face -face classes. I teach this class online quite a bit, too, and online uh, the students often want to be engaged in the discussion, just like um, my colleagues were saying. And so I, I do discussions online quite a bit. Like this semester I had students start this section by having discussion about their feelings about childbirth. I have had a lot of young students this semester who were very nervous about this unit. And, and there was some really interesting dialogue about everything from being concerned about having to see pictures of childbirth. They weren't sure if they were going to have to actually see a video in this class to worries about th their own pregnancies. You know, eventually they were worried about what it was going to be like to have to go through childbirth. And there it was a really interesting discussion this semester. It was the first time I'd ever tried it, and it was a, it was a nice discussion. It's so amazing how every 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 class is different, even though you teach the exact same, you know, maybe the exact same stuff the exact same way, and just a different personality of students will open up and ask you, you know, all sorts of questions about something, and then others, it's like crickets in the room. You never, you never quite know what you're going to get. Right. In some of my online classes, I have them, uh, in some of my online classes, I have them do a little bit of research on adoption and how much adoption costs, what options are international adoption versus domestic adoption. Um, and I've also uh, left it as an option for students to watch 
a documentary on Netflix called Stuck, and that walks through um, four different orphans in different parts of the world uh, and kind of what their journey is when it comes to adoption. And then I have other options for students to watch videos that are part of the library database if they don't have a Netflix account. Great. So it sounds like you guys are all getting started in the either conception or, or preconception stage. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So moving from conception into childhood, um, you know, we've already shared some stories and examples. When you get to the childhood part of the chapter, are there specific stories or examples that you're using to help engage students in that content? I think that videos are incredibly important in this area because um, for my students, you know, like I said, many of whom are 18, they don't generally have kids themselves. And although they have siblings, they don't necessarily remember what it was like when they were babies or toddlers. And so I, I show a lot of videos. I show videos of infant uh, newborn reflexes. I show videos of PJ's conservation tasks as they get a little bit older, object permanence, all of those kinds of things, even if it's quick 30-second clips, just to give them um, a picture in their head of what I'm trying to explain in class. When I talk about language development with children, I talk about, uh, I'll show the video online uh, with like the two talking twins, the talking babies. That seems to be a pretty popular one that, or they're having a conversation standing in front of the refrigerator. And Although we can't understand what they're saying, you know, it kind of introduces the idea of where language starts and how they get going with it. I tend to use a lot of narrative in my course. So um, by narrative, I just mean stories. So I use video games and case studies and TV shows and journal writing and social media and just any variety of stories so that my students have some form of narrative to apply learning objectives uh, on that content. And so I use gaming quite a bit in my own classes. But whatever form of storyline, sometimes it's you know, a documentary that I bring in or whatever, I, I use that, uh, even an observational assignment, and I use that content to allow the students to, to have something to hang the learning objectives on. So I saw this in the game. This has to be an example of behavior, or isn't this an example of attachment, or I saw this, is this really how, you know, I, we were just watching, you know, this this video, is that really how the fallopian tubes look, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and so I, we can start to talk about content, or did they, is that really just Hollywood's version of it? So it's a good way to get students talking about the content when they've got a, something to, some visual normally and a storyline to go with it. They like The Walking Dead quite a bit. They want to talk about that all the time for some reason in my class. <laughs> so they want to know about, you know, how people would survive and what different age groups would be like and, so we use the stories from that sometimes. So it sounds like when we're talking about the childhood stage, exposure to video or narratives is important. Is that because a lot of students can't call back to when they were younger and achieving specific milestones or they don't have kids of their own to see that? Is that why the video aspect is so important in this stage? Sure. It's really hard to remember what you, what you um, it, it's hard to know what you didn't know. And so, um, you know, when I show them things like, you know, we talk about conservation tasks or a theory of mind, and I show them, you know, a video about crayons in the Band-Aid box, for example, and, you know, they're always like, well, why, why are they saying that there's crayons when they now know that there's Band-Aids or whatever? Um, 
they don't remember before they knew what theory of mind was. They don't remember before they knew what object permanence was. And so illustrating that to them in a video is so much more helpful than having, you know, than just explaining it to them because I feel like there's almost a tendency for them to say, yeah, but people don't really think like that, do they? And then they see them on the video and then they, they always ask me, well, how do you fix it? Like, what do you do about it? And, you know, and we talk about, well, you know, this is just a cognitive limitation of this stage. It's not something you fix. They just have to kind of grow out of it. But but it's almost like they don't believe you necessarily until they see a video about it. <laughs> no, that's so funny. I have a spate of students this semester who ask me all the time, is that true? Is that true? <laughs> like I'm going to get up in front of them and create up a bunch of lies and go, I wonder if they'll believe this. Is that true? Is that right. true? <laughs> It's a great conspiracy by all the yeah. textbook authors. Right. right. <laughs> okay, so so video important in childhood. As we move kind of along the curriculum into the stage of adolescence, Janelle, I know you had talked about a specific, I think it was an article that you introduced to your classroom. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sometimes sometimes I think shock value is great in the classroom, but also, I mean, especially when it has a has a purpose, um, and one of the things I talk about in adolescence especially is teenage sexuality and the fact that as puberty, for example, is, is starting at younger and younger ages, um, and we do talk some about that, that, one of the things we're asking adolescents to do is really inhibit their natural sexual desires for a really long time. Um, and that, you know, it used to be maybe that, you, you hit puberty at 16, you were often getting married and having children. Now, you know, you're hitting puberty at 9 or 10, and we're saying, okay, great, but hold that thought until you're 25. And, and that really changes the conversation. And, you know, not saying that's a bad thing, but that it changes how we have to approach puberty in adolescence. And so one of the things that I found um, a couple of years back was a Psych Today article that talked about what fifth graders want to know about sex. And it was written by um, the author had, uh, had taught some sex ed classes and had one of those boxes where you could put in, you know, anonymous questions that you obviously didn't want to ask in front of the entire other class of fifth graders. And it just kind of listed some of them. And so I picked, you know, I give them the, the reference, of course, because I like to reference as much actual research as I can in my class. But then also I kind of pick out, granted some of the, the more controversial questions that were asked, and, and I put them up on the screen, like 10 or 15 of the questions, just kind of all at once, give them a minute to, you know, kind of digest that, and then I ask them, how does this change the narrative? How does this change how we have to talk to people? And you can see them kind of talk, and I listen around the room, and they'll start to say, my little brother's in fifth grade or my little brother is in fourth grade or sixth grade and they're right around there. Does that mean they're asking these questions? Do they know about this stuff? I didn't think they knew about this stuff. And all of a sudden they start to think about, whoa, how am I going to go home and talk to my sibling now, you know, during break about sex and all of this, these things that they're thinking. Um, and so, you know, I like to I like to bring some of that in there because I think, I think, again, it's a real-world thing, um, something they can take home and think about and use, but also has a lot of theoretical implications about the brain and hormones and, and even culture and society and all sorts of things are tied up, you know, sort of in that one topic. Catherine, you were saying that there are some things in the adolescence chapter that you also use in ex as an example? 
Yeah, I tend to focus more on the mental health side of adolescents just because I, I see a lot of that today. The students are really struggling. They're feeling overwhelmed. They have a lot of pressures on them. It's a little more challenging for kids to grow up today, you know, being in middle school and high school than it was, you know, maybe when their parents were going through or their grandparents were going through. Um, I do crisis intervention work. Uh, so I'm on call often during the week, and I go out to hospitals, and I do assessments on adolescents that are suicidal. Sometimes they just have behavior issues, and an occasional homicidal adolescent uh, I interview. And then I help make appropriate placements, whether or not they're safe to go home or whether or not they need to be inpatient or what level of care that they need. So I see a lot of firsthand problems that the adolescents face today and and the struggles that they have and the lack of resources that they have. And so in class I share some of the stories that of adolescents that I, I work with. We talk a little bit about brain development and just some of the overall uh, family situations that they're in that might help contribute to where they've gotten to the point that they are today. Great. So that sounds like it's a very applied part of your lecture. Yes. So moving from adolescence into adulthood, I think, Sherry, you said that this is kind of where you cut it off. Is that correct? Yes. We just don't okay. have the time to go any further. Seems like a pretty universal challenge. Janelle, you were mentioning that there's a specific example with ringtones that you use at this point in yeah. the lecture. Yeah, so, um, you know, all throughout the developmental chapter, I, I mention my kids a lot because I have, you know, kids of very different ages, and uh, my oldest, my daughter, had brought me home uh, a thing a couple of years ago where she discovered that some of her classmates were using uh, a ringtone that they were using specifically because their teachers couldn't hear it because it's like super high pitched um, and you can download it pretty much anywhere. And so the idea is they could be sending messages in class and they would all hear the phone going off, but their teachers couldn't. And I thought that was, you know, really funny and kind of cool that they thought of that. Um, and I found a video talking about it as well from kind of a more scientific standpoint that I show in class. So instead of just kind of saying, you know, we know that hearing declines, I, I ask them, you know, who, you know, who loses hearing first, men or women, it tends to be men, and, you know, what kind of hearing is lost first, high pitches or low pitches, and they, they tend to know that it's high pitches. And so then we talk about, you know, I, I kind of give them, I tell them about my daughter bringing home this ringtone, and a lot of them have heard of it before. And I say, so, you know, at what age do you stop being able to hear that? Like, when can you start seeing these declines? And they're thinking 50s and 60s. And so then I put up this video that plays the ringtone. So it starts with, like, a fairly low pitch and starts going up higher and higher and higher. And I have them all put their hands in the air. And remember, there's like 500 of them. So I have them all put their hands in the air. And I say, when you stop being able to hear it, put your hand down. And I do it too. And, of course, I stop being able to hear it way before they do. And then I start seeing hands go down all across the room. And then a couple of them can hear it kind of all the way up. And then we talk about it. You know, okay, well, obviously I put my hand down first. I'm old, the oldest one in the room, so that would make sense. But then how come, even though a lot of you are 18, 19, there's differences in when you put your hands down? And you know, we talk about it's not really scientific. The speakers in the room aren't that great, of course. But it lets us talk about both, you know, nature and the natural process of aging, 
but then also nurture, you know, people, well, I, I, you know, went to tons of rock concerts or I have a job where I have to hear really loud things all the time, so I've lost my hearing faster than the kid who's sitting next to me. And so we can talk about both of those elements. And plus they just think it's fun and cool and they take it home and they show their roommates and stuff like that. And it, it's one of those examples that it takes three minutes, and but it sticks with them. Catherine or Sherry, anything you guys uh, use as examples or stories in the adulthood, or Catherine and Sherry, I guess you don't cover the adulthood part. I, I don't cover a lot with young adulthood and middle adulthood. Um, I do a little bit maybe, I talk a little bit about menopause and changes in sexuality uh, as one goes through the aging process, but I talk a lot about the healthcare industry today and how it affects our seniors and what students can expect either when they themselves get there or dealing with grandparents that need care later on in life or their parents, what kind of care are they going to need later on in life, uh, and some of the challenges that are out there for senior citizens today, um, options like nursing homes or assisted living or independent living and what those mean. Uh, so I cover some of that with students and kind of get them thinking about, you know, what, what, what do your parents have in place? You know, who's going to take care of your parents when the time comes? Um, I, I talk a little bit about, like, the sandwich generation and, you know, how are they going to manage dealing with their parents and their parents' needs as well as, you know, when they are trying to raise a family. <clears throat> and then when we get into death and dying, I tend to show three uh, video clips from YouTube, um, one that covers Dr. Kevorkian uh, and his fight uh, for euthanasia and assisted suicide. I show a clip on Terry Shivo's case from Florida, and I also show a clip from Brittany Maynard, uh, the girl from the woman from Oregon who uh, ended her life uh, after she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so we just kind of talk about, you know, what end of life looks like and that a lot of this is in the legislation today and the states are, you know, more and more states are pushing to pass something that Oregon has in place and just to kind of get them thinking about possibilities um, or choices that they might have to make at some point in life. I guess I emphasize um, a little bit less serious um, end-of-life stuff, and I, I, I talk about more of the how to push the envelope towards things like sending lifespan and will we be able to live longer and, um, you know, what are, some, what are some research advancements that have looked at that, what are some of the ethical concerns with pushing the envelope towards the lifespan and things like that as well. I really push with them to think about, you know, where they see themselves and the importance of maintaining a healthy lifestyle and thinking about what they're doing and how it's going to affect them in the future. Uh, and I talked to them a little bit about having, you know, a living will. Um, you know, even at mm -hmm. 18, 19, 20 years of age, you know, in a case like Terry Shivo's, she didn't really have a say as to what happened to her. She was married and her husband made the final decision, you know, and who, right. who do they want to make the final decision? You know, what kind of say do they want? when it comes to end-of-life care, because they might be 18, but who knows when the life ends. Definitely. Writing a living sure. will is an option in my lifespan class as an assignment. They can actually do that mm -hmm. for themselves. Okay, well, I guess that takes us all the way through the development chapter. Much like we talked about the challenge of trying to cover all this information in a short period of time, I think we've actually ran over a little bit today, but that's okay. Uh, before we sign off, I want to give each of you a chance to share some parting thoughts. So, Janelle, do you want to kick us off? I, I think that one of the reasons that I, I love the developmental chapter so much, on top of the fact that it's so relevant to, um, to all of us because we've all, of course, been children and will one day be adults, 
some of us sooner than others. I think that uh, it pulls in so many of the different areas across the, the chapters. So you can really see how you can talk about brain development and learning and memory and social psychology and so many different things in this one chapter that I think it really uh, represents a lot of the field of psychology as a whole. It's one of the reasons I spend so much time on it and come back to it over and over again. Also, you know, of course, we know from other research that when students can self-reference information, it helps them learn it. And so I think that coming back to a lot of the, the concepts we've talked about in this chapter over and over again as we learn new information, I, I think that helps kind of anchor them and realize that they have their own place in development as a whole, but then also in, in psychology as a whole also. I think, as my colleagues have said, there's a real place for application in lifespan development, getting our students to think about how lifespan applies to them and also how they can apply it to their relationships and their work, a real benefit. I think that our students have a lot of questions during this unit about not only themselves but other age ranges, and I think many of them are embarrassing questions for them to ask. So I'm actually trying a, a new format where I ask the questions, the questions that I, I know from 20 years teaching now, um, ask the questions I think they, they might be asking in their heads, and then we try to answer them as a class together. And I think students are much more engaged when they hear some of the questions, even crazy questions that they might want to know the answers to, uh, and they don't have to posit the questions that are concerning them, but they're getting those answers. That makes them a little more free to ask them. I, I think they're sometimes worried they're going to offend someone if they're sitting in class with someone who might be in that age range. You know, am I going to offend that older woman or the pregnant woman or whatever? And so I, I think getting them in touch with the fact that it's okay to ask questions and be curious and it's not offensive and you don't have to be afraid is a good way to get them engaged with the material. Sherry, I really liked what you said about application because I have really stressed doing that with my students in the last few years to really get them to apply as much of the information as they're learning. So I really feel that's the, the way that they're going to remember it and the, and the way they're going to understand it and be able to relate to it is they're able to apply it to their own life, and they're able to do that with the lifespan chapter. Even if they're, you know, not senior citizen age, they have grandparents, they have parents, you know, who are middle adulthood or this, you know, older age. So they have experience basically with all parts of the lifespan chapter at some point, either themselves or, you know, through relationships that they have with other people. One of the things, if I see students struggling, like maybe they want to ask a question, but they are scared to ask a question, I've done this in class a few times, where I will open it up and anybody that wants to ask anything they want, like the sky's the limit, um, I have everybody write down something, and even if they have nothing to say, they still have to write down, I have nothing to say, or I have no question at this time, and then I collect the papers from everybody, and I'll run through and answer questions that students have, so it takes the pressure off of them having to ask what might be an embarrassing question in front of the whole class. Great. Well, thank you, all three of you, um, not only for joining us, but for also sharing your insights into teaching the developmental psychology chapter. I know that I, as well as uh, many of the people that are listening, appreciate the insights and examples that you've been able to share today. So with that, thank you, everybody, for joining us, and we will be back in a couple of weeks with the next installment of the podcast. Thanks, everybody. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.